Father in Heaven, as we come now toward the end, the last few chapters here of the book of Judges, we've seen a lot, Lord. We've seen a lot of amazing failures. And we've seen a tremendous amount of sin among the people of Israel in that day. And Father, it has served at least for me to uh, almost shine like a mirror because I recognize my sin and the things I see. And we recognize, Father, that we are faithless, but you are faithful and we're so grateful to you. But Father, tonight as we continue on in this study, I know there are important things that you have for us. As with every verse of every chapter of every page of Scripture, there's something here for us tonight. Father, I believe that you've gathered every single person who's here into this place. Though for some of us it may seem random, maybe we came with a friend, maybe Lord we just, I don't know, decided to come at the last minute. I believe we have all been gathered to this place for a purpose tonight, and I believe your word is going to speak to us because your word is so effective. So Father, I pray that you will reveal to us your heart in the scriptures. And I pray, as we often do, that we will see Jesus. And that we will focus on Him. And that we won't count on a church to save us. Lord, that we won't count on another human being to save us. We will count only on Jesus Christ and the blood, Lord Jesus, that You poured out at Calvary. That is what saves us. We proclaim this in prayer, we believe it, we accept it, we receive it from you as your grace, Father. And tonight in the scriptures, again, pour out your spirit that we might understand and follow you and be obedient to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The appendix of the book of Judges, chapters 17 through 21... Give us an overview of Israel during the days of the judges. The author takes time to portray for us the state of the world in those days. And we've seen this in strikingly similar ways it has looked like, or it does look like, the state of our world today. In chapter 17, we saw the apostasy of a man, Micah. We saw him developing his own religion and blending in other things to his faith in God. In chapter 18, we saw the apostasy of a tribe on Sunday morning in the tribe of Dan. And tonight, in chapters 19 through 21, and we won't probably get to 21, but we see the effects of apostasy in a people, in the entire people of Israel. Samuel is very methodical in these last few chapters. Again, I I believe Samuel is the writer of Judges. And he's very methodical in these last few chapters in starting with apostasy in a man, then moving it out to a tribe, then moving it out to all of Israel so that we can see in each one of these settings what apostasy looks like. Remember what apostasy is. It's from that Greek word apostasia, which means a falling away. To fall away, you have to have been in line with something in the first place. So this is not talking, apostasy is not talking about people who never believed in God who never had a relationship with Jesus. Apostasy is dealing with and talking about people who at one time knew the Lord, but chose to walk away from the Lord. Or someone who is in a place in life where maybe they still have faith in Jesus, but they have fallen in in the obedience factor and in the following after Jesus. And that's what we see in Israel. Again, this is not a people that has wholesale rejected God. It's a people who have added into their faith in God other things. It's a people who decide, well, they, it says over and over that they, they do what's right in their own eyes, what seems right in their own eyes. And that's the problem that we see repeated over and over in these pages. Now tonight's story is one of the most sick and brutal tales of sin in all of Scripture. It's a difficult story to talk about in Scripture. And there are four aspects of the study tonight that I'm going to give you. We kind of outline some things going through, and we often do this. The first one is moral decline. This is a time of moral decline in Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 19, It came about in those days when there was no king in Israel, that a certain Levite, staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, took, who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah, it says, but his concubine, well, she played the harlot against him. 
And she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah and was there for a period of four months. No king in Israel indeed. The theme of the book of Judges, which is now repeated four times at the end of the book of Judges, in chapter 17, verse 6, in chapter 18, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, and chapter 21, verse 25, the very last phrase in the entire book of Judges reads as follows, In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We're not even out of the first two verses of tonight's study before we discover a man who is doing what is right in his own eyes. He's a Levite. He's a pastor in our present day understanding. And he has taken for himself a concubine. Actually, let me, let me pause here. Two things to note about this uh, beginning here. The first thing is the time and the second thing is the concubine. But first off, the time. So that you know where this took place or when this took place. We have an actual timestamp right here in chapter 20, verse 28. And if you look over there at that, it tells us that Phineas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before the tabernacle to minister in those days. So we understand what's being talked about in chapters 19, 20, and 21 happened when Phineas was the high priest of Israel, which was at the time of Joshua, actually just after Joshua's death. Phineas was high priest when Joshua was alive. Joshua dies, and the days of apostasy, it didn't take 30 years, or 60 years, or 400 years to get as bad as what we're going to read tonight. It was instantaneous. After Joshua died, after Moses died before him, Moses the great leader who could stand up and return the people to the law again and again, Joshua the great military mind, who also was returning the people to repentance and faith in the Lord again and again, but after the demise of these two men, after they passed on, and there was no one truly leading Israel, apostasy struck, and it's almost instantaneous. And so the time is back, when Phineas was high priest, just after the death of Joshua in the early days of the judges. The concubine. This, this guy took a concubine for himself. What is a concubine? It's defined as either one who cohabits without being married... So an unmarried woman who's living with a guy, or a woman who is married but holds a second-class position lower than an actual wife. Oftentimes in these days, men would take a concubine as a, as a status symbol. I got an extra wife over here, just, you know, for my pleasure, for my will, and, and to do my bidding, whatever I want. But she doesn't really have the, the, the social status of being like my wife, though I'm married to her, she's just, she's an extra. She's a fill-in. And I can call on her whenever I want. <laughs> a spare. Yeah. The first one blows out, I got another one. To pull right in there. Or it's a woman who lives with a man when they're not married at all. Which one is it with this Levite? We don't know. All we know is he has a concubine. So she's either a second class citizen in this marriage or she's just living with him. Either way, gang, this was never divinely improved, approved. This human arrangement seemed right to the men of the day. It seemed like a good idea. It seemed right in their own eyes, but it was never divinely approved by the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 19:4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's not the two shall become one flesh with the spare. And I like that. It's actually a really good picture there of the concubine. The spare tire on the back of the vehicle in case we need her. That is not the way it was from the beginning, Jesus says. And he said, there are no longer two but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And it was the standard then from the very beginning, and it's the standard now, though our culture doesn't want to uh, acknowledge it. Though we live in a culture where living with someone is so commonplace that it doesn't even make Christians shudder when we read about it in magazines or see it on the news. It doesn't even make us have a second thought when we look at celebrities who are living with their living boyfriend or girlfriend, it's no big deal. It's just the way it is. It's not just the way it is. It was wrong in the beginning. It's wrong now. Nothing has changed as far as the Lord is concerned when it comes to marriage. One man, one woman for one life. The Levite took this concubine for himself and it didn't signal a divine approval, but it signaled depraved amorality. He didn't really know any better, apparently. It just seemed like a good thing to do. It seemed right in his own eyes. And before we get out of these first two verses, we see what the outcome is. She played the harlot. This is a real good situation that we're heading into. 
And here's the problem, by the way, of cohabitating, of living together, of, of, a, of a man and a woman moving in together and not being married. The problem is there's no commitment. There's no true commitment. It's an arrangement by which two people can get together and see if we're compatible. And then if we are, then we'll maybe take the next step of buying a house together. <laughs> and then maybe we'll take, you know, down the road, maybe we'll take the step of marriage when we're really truly ready to commit. How many people want to be in a relationship like that? Where I, I, I want to hang out with you, but I don't want to be committed to you. So if things go bad between us, or especially in your life, well, then I'm out the door. And that's the problem right here. There's no true commitment. The guy takes a concubine, so what does she do? She's either a second-class citizen or a live-in, a live-in or a live-down. Either way, she says, I'm going to find some love somewhere else. And so she goes a whoring. And that's where our story begins tonight. Verse 3. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back. You'll see how tender he is later on in the chapter. Taking with him a servant and a pair of donkeys. And so she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him. So he remained with him three days. So they ate and they drank and they lodged there. Now on the fourth day, they got up early in the morning. And he prepared to go. And the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Sustain yourself with a piece of bread and afterward you may go. So both of them sat down. And they ate and they drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Please, be willing to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Let's drink a little more. <laughs> Don't go anywhere now. Stick around longer. Verse 7. Then the man arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him so that he spent the night there again. On the fifth day, verse 8, he arose to go early in the morning. And the girl's father said, Please, sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. So both of them ate. And when the man arose to go along with his concubine and servant, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold now, the day is drawn to a close. Please, spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here that your heart may be merry. Then tomorrow you may arise early for your journey so that you may go home. What is going on here? It's one of those passages where you're reading it and you're saying, Okay, this is here for a reason. I think the father of this girl is trying to involve himself in the reconciliation of their marriage. And he thinks the longer I can get him and her to stick around here, the more I can be involved in what's going on, the more I can help this marriage, because he apparently wants the marriage to work. The motivation is good, but the methodology is all wrong. And I need to speak especially to parents of kids who are married, and to those of you who are young married especially, Jesus said again in Matthew 19.5 For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now someone might say, okay, but doesn't it seem right that if this marriage is not working, doesn't it seem right that the father should involve himself and try and make the marriage better? Doesn't that seem right? Isn't that the responsibility of, of mom and dad if, if your kid's marriage is not working well, isn't it your responsibility to get in there and help out? Not necessarily. Jesus said the two shall leave their mother and father and be joined together. Here's what I'm getting at. The word says leave and be joined. We say it seems right to stick our noses in and help out when we've got children who are married and it's not working well. Or if I happen to be married and I'm having trouble, to run home to mom or run home to dad and talk to them instead of talking to the spouse who is the person who I need to be talking to. And the reason I'm bringing this up is the number three cause of divorce is in-laws. Number one is sex. Number two is finances. Number three is in-laws. The reason why people divorce. Well, are in-laws just jerks? No, in-laws care. In-laws really want to be involved. In-laws want to help the marriage get better. But that's not what the marriage needs. What the husband and the wife need is to go together before the Lord and work it out together. As opposed to going home and complaining about the spouse to mom or dad. But, but Rick, it, it seems like the right thing to do. I understand that. But Proverbs 14.12 says there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There are all kinds of things that seem right to us. So how do I know what is right and what just seems right but is wrong? Well, I go to the Word. And the Word indicates clearly that a man and a woman are to cling to each other. 
and leave the father and the mother. Stick to the word. The word says we're to leave parents, cling to the spouse. The word says, Ephesians 5.33, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. I think what this guy is doing is probably from a good, again, a good motivation, but a bad methodology. He's trying to get involved in something that he really needs to stand back. Parents of married kids, you are wise in not listening to your kids' complaints about their spouse. You are wise to say, don't talk to me, honey. Go talk to him. You're wise to say, dude, (laughs) take it to your wife. And you guys work it out and don't involve me in this. You go home, go to your home, and love your wife. Well, for whatever reason, I think that's what was going on, but whatever the reason, the man is detaining him and detains him several days. Finally, verse 10 tells us, the man was not willing to spend the night. So he arose and departed and came to a place opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. It's called Jebus because the Jebusites were living there at the time. And there were with him a pair of saddled donkeys. His concubine also was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone. And the servant said to his master, Please come. Let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. However, his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel. But we will go on as far as Gibeah. Now, again, this seems like the right thing to do. This Levite is relying on a people who by name should have been better than the foreigners of Jebus. So he should have gone to a tribe of Israel. He should have gone to people who were his own. But he's going to learn, as you'll see the hard way, he's going to learn that you can't judge a city by its name. And I point this out just to say that just because someone says I'm a Christian doesn't mean you just accept lock, stock, and barrel what they have to say. Just because a business happens to have a cross or a fish or a Bible verse on their card doesn't mean they're trustworthy or even the most effective person to call in for the job. We had our septic system uh, pumped this week. I won't go into that. It's about the grossest thing I've ever had to deal with in my life. It didn't matter to me if the man pumping the system had a fish stuck on his car. What mattered to me is he knew how to pump the system. Okay? That was more important to me than, than any fish. I'm saying, guys, that we as Christians need to learn how to be loving, but to be wise. How to discern what someone is bringing, even if they claim to be bringing it in the name of the Lord, being a Christian is not synonymous with being stupid. It is not synonymous with being blind or being gullible. And a lot of Christians think, well, we're supposed to be innocent like children. We're supposed to be, you know, accepting of people. And so we find ourselves getting into trouble in relationships and business and whatever else because we thought the other person was bringing the Lord to us. And Jesus said very clearly, Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents. And innocent as doves. Be innocent, yes, but be smart about it. Don't be dumb. Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. Luke 16.8, he says, listen to this, The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Jesus, he's so amazing. Because in his love... And in His acceptance and His mercy and His grace, Jesus also, John tells us in the early chapters of the Gospel of John, Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. He was wise. He didn't cast his pearls before swine. This man decides not to go to the city of the Jebusites, but instead to go to Gibeah, because Gibeah was a place of Israelites. It was a mistake. Again, as we'll see, going further. Verse 13, he said to his servant, Come, let us approach one of these places. We will spend the night in Gibeah, or Rama, And so they passed along and they went their way and the sun set on them near Gibeah which belongs to Benjamin. Verse 15, they turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. And when they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Now the custom of the day didn't have Motel 6 or Best Western or you know places that you could lodge. You would go into a city square, have a seat, and wait for someone to invite you to come stay at their house if you happen to be an outsider of the town. And the hospitality of the day was if you were in the city square and you saw someone that wasn't of the city and needed a place to stay, you'd offer them a room. And they'd come stay with you. This man, this is the first sign of trouble. He's in the city of Gibeah with Benjamites who are of the tribe of Israel. He is of the tribe of Israel. And no one's offering him any hospitality. No one's welcoming him in. 
It's important for us as a fellowship, by the way, when people walk in the door who you don't recognize, instead of turning away because you're not sure if you know that person, you don't want to introduce yourself again, you go up to them and you show hospitality. It's our responsibility to anyone who walks in the doors of the barn to show hospitality, to, to welcome them, to invite them, to let them know that this is a loving place, something that many of us have already figured out, but it's our role and responsibility to pass it along. So that was the hospitable thing to do at that time. Verse 16 going on says, Behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. So here's an outsider who's living there among the Benjamites, but he comes up, and he lifted his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I'm from there, and I went to Bethlehem in Judah to get my prostitute wife. But I am now going to my house. I added that part. He didn't say that. (laughs) But I am now going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Kind of stuck here. It's getting dark, and no one's showing any hospitality whatsoever. Uh, he says, there's both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, and your maidservant, and the young man who is with, my, with your service. There's no lack of anything. In other words, he's saying, I have everything I need. I don't need anything. I just need a place to stay. And the old man said, peace to you. Only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into his house and gave the donkeys fodder, and they washed their feet, and they ate and drank. And the old man does the right thing for his traveler. But here in this Israelite town of Gibeah, of the tribe of Benjamin, here's where things go horribly wrong. Second thing in your outline, spiritual depravity. Verse 22. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house and the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may have relations with him. Gibeah is a city. It's not a people. Some might think of the Gibeonites. That's not who we're talking about here. Gibeah is just a city name. These are Benjamites. These are Israelite people. These worthless fellows are of Israel. We rewind a thousand years back to Genesis chapter 19 and verse 5 and the exact same thing happened in a place called Sodom where men surrounded the house of Lot when the angels came to tell Lot he needed to get out of the town. The men surrounded the house and said, let your visitors come out so that we can have relations with them. And you know what we're talking about here. And this is what's going on in Gibeah, in the tribe of Benjamin, in Israel. Fast forward 3,000 years from this point in time and consider the homosexual agenda today. Like a house increasingly surrounded, we are not far off from this event. Now, I need to point this out. The Bible speaks clearly about homosexuality. There is no gray area where the Bible is concerned. Let me read you a couple of verses so you'll know what the Bible, both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament say. Leviticus 18.22 You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Clear enough? Chapter 20, verse 13 of the book of Leviticus. If there is a man who lies with a woman, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. So we have words like abomination, detestable, blood guiltiness, worthy of death. This is what homosexuality was treated as in the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay, that's the Old Testament, Rick. New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 27. God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error, and just as they did not see to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Paul says homosexuality, he defines it as depraved. So we have abomination, we have detestable, and we have depraved. The Bible is not mincing words with how God feels about homosexuality. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, and that's talking about sexually, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 8 through 10. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the holy, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, let's be clear, it doesn't matter how much the gay and lesbian community demands tolerance and fair treatment as a minority group, as far as God is concerned, homosexuality remains an affront to Him. Rick, why are you going off on this? This is not an issue for us here. I'm telling you this partially because of some conversations I've had with my own children about what they're hearing at school. And those of you teenagers who are here tonight, listen to me very carefully on this. You can't miss this. You already at this point in your life have been impressed heavily in the public school system with homosexuality being okay. It's not. It's not. And it doesn't matter how many of your teachers say it is, and it doesn't matter how many times they say it is. And and it concerns me because I look at our kids going through the public school system and seeing and hearing these things, and over and over and over, this is what's being prescribed in this world in which we live. USA Today, Useless Today uh, paper. (laughs) This is uh, July 9th, so just a couple days ago, Monday. When it comes to gays, what would Martin Luther do? Given the way he dealt with the issues of his day, the father of the Protestant Reformation may very well have seen the same-sex arguments in a more accepting light. And this person goes on to argue that case, saying that because Martin Luther was supportive of marriage for priests, that in today's day and age, Martin Luther would have been supportive of homosexuality too, because that's where the culture's gone. This is in, again, the newspaper this week. And it's constant and it's consistent. And in Canada today, I've shared with some of you, in Canada, a pastor within the last few years, you know about this, Aaron, it's in a book called um, The Criminalization of Christianity, a pastor spent jail time because he read the verses that I read to you tonight. This is the world in which we live. This is the world of the judges. And the two worlds are so similar, it is frightening to me. And we might say, well, how did this thing happen in Israel? Exactly how this thing is happening in our culture. Every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. That's America's problem. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. I don't see what the problem is. I don't, you know, personally want to engage in homosexuality, but I got friends who do, and I don't have any problem with that. It seems right to them. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it's in thereof is death. And the standard of Scripture hasn't changed regardless of how much we and our culture may change. There are Christian groups and churches declaring homosexuality to be okay doing what's right in their own eyes. What would Martin Luther do? Well, honestly, I don't really care what Martin Luther would do. I care what Jesus would do. And I care what Jesus thinks and I care what His Word has to say. Verse 23. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wicked, my fellows. No, my fellows. No, buds. Does he hang with these guys? Are these his friends? No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. What's he saying? He's not really addressing the immorality of what they want to do. He's saying, this guy's under my roof. And again, Middle Eastern hospitality... Even today, it provides for three days. If someone comes under your roof, they are under your protection for three days. After three days, you can kill them or whatever you want. But for three days, even if it's an enemy, if they come under, the, under your roof, they have your protection. And that's what he's appealing to. Hey, he's my guest. So don't do this. Don't violate you know, my, my role with this guy. He's come into my house. Don't commit this act of folly. Verse 24. He says, instead, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. It's in your Bibles. 
This is what happens when a culture begins to do what is right in their own eyes. It's nothing less than depravity. And the depravity we're talking about here is highlighted two ways, and you should see this in the culture in which we live, homosexual agenda, which is more and more accepted, and secondly, women are increasingly undermined and treated as objects and abused. No, but Rick, what about women's liberation in America? I don't see it. What I see is turning on the TV late at night and ads for Girls Gone Wild which is degrading to women. What I see is what just came out today. Larry Flint of Hustler Magazine has outed what is David Vetter, the uh, uh, a senator, Republican senator, who apparently has been seeing a madam in uh, D.C. And so he's outed. He's very excited. In fact, before I came down here, and I had to turn it off because it disgusted me, Larry Flint, would, or Flint, or Flint, I don't know what he's, that guy, he was being interviewed and he was just delighting in the fact that he had a list of 20 or 30 senators that he was getting ready to out who had gone to see prostitutes and he had this information he was so excited that he was going to bring down these family values guys and here's where we live for all the so-called advances by the way of the women's liberation movement I just don't see it going well for women today oh some things I'm sure glad women can vote I mean I'm glad that there is more along the lines of equality for men and women, but I'm not seeing it morally speaking. I continue to see that women are objects in this culture, and if you don't believe me, ask Paris Hilton. Or watch Rihanna's new video, which I would imagine many of you haven't seen. Rihanna's song Umbrella, Ella, 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 if you, ha- if you haven't heard that. It's a huge hit right now. The video is out on VH1 MTV and they play it and, and at one point in the video she is painted silver but she's completely nude. And this is the representation, this is the modeling that our teenage girls have in culture today. Rosie O'Donnell, here's another one, who's a great symbol of what it means to be a woman in America. Dang, if feminists today were true students of history, they would be elevating one name above all other names, and it's not Susan B. Anthony, and it's not Gloria Steinem, and it's not Hillary Clinton, it's Jesus Christ. Because he is the true women's liberator. He is the one, and you ladies, you know this. Wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone in the world, freedom for women and elevation for women and respect and honor for women has gone with it. Everywhere the gospel is seen, it changes the life of women where they are honored and liberated to their rightful place in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. All of equal honor, all of, of, of grace position, male and female. Yeah, we know, we understand we have roles, we have positions that God has created us for where we function best in those roles. But as far as who is worthy in the eyes of Jesus Christ, man and woman are equally worthy according to the gospel of Jesus. However, wherever the gospel has not gone in the world, women are enslaved. And it's an easy picture to see. Look at Iran. Check out Saudi Arabia. What is life like for women in India? It is nothing like where the gospel has gone. Yeah, Rick, well the gospel came to America. Yeah, it did. And the gospel is very quickly being thrown out of America and the place of women is becoming more and more demeaned. And I am concerned greatly for our country. Verse 25 going on. He says, take my virgin daughter, Kate, take his concubine, have a field day with them. Verse 25. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them and they raped her and abused her all night until morning and then they let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, and behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, tenderly, I might add, Get up and let's go. But there was no answer. And then he placed her on the donkey. And the man arose and went to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her in twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. Beaten, abused, gang-raped, and now the concubine is dead. 
He throws her over the back of his donkey, goes home and cuts her up and sends her out. Talk about depraved. You could have seen this on the news, by the way, just in the last six months. People killing other people and cutting them up and hiding their bodies in different places and all that. We see it in America. Don't be too shocked. It could be on Fox News in the morning. Verse 30 says, All who saw it said, Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak up. And the Levite, by doing this, why would he do this graphic, horrific thing? Well, his second-class wife, or live-in, was abused and taken from her, from him, and, and was killed in the process. So he wants justice. So he cuts her up and sends her out. It's not because he's asking for a handout. He's not trying to get a leg up. He wasn't even putting his foot down. Okay, He was screaming bloody murder to the people of Israel. He wanted the people of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, to see what he saw. To have a sense of the brutality of what had happened to him, to his concubine. He wanted Israel's attention and he got it. He got their attention. What would you think? You know, If you happen to be one of the 12 tribes and a package comes in the mail wrapped up in brown paper... Packages, you know, tied up with string. I mean, <laughs> and you open this thing up. Uh-huh. And so all the tribes get together. Verse 1 of chapter 20. All the sons of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, well, they took their stand in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. They are hopping mad. They are ready to go to war. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the sons of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wickedness take place? place? So the Levite... The husband of the woman who was murdered answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me, and they intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance. For they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. What do we do about this? How are we going to handle this? Verse 8, Then all the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. And we will take ten men out of a hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, and a hundred out of a thousand, and a thousand out of, out of ten thousand to supply food for the people, that when they come to Gibeah of Benjamin, they may punish them for all the disgraceful acts which they have committed in Israel. There's a ten percent draft, basically is what they're saying. Ten percent of every tribe is going to go up against these people. And it says in verse 11, Thus all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united as one man. And I read this and I thought, wow, nothing unites people like war. Of course, nothing divides people like war as well. Think about the current application of this story. Let's, let's make a modern picture of this. There's an act of sheer brutality that gets the nation's attention. It forces a nation to open its eyes to depravity. It mobilizes an apathetic nation into action. And it brought about a unifying patriotism. Does that sound familiar to you? We are in seven years back from 9-11 and the exact same similar thing happened. 3,000 people died in the, in the Twin Towers, but it mobilized a nation. And we rallied and boy, I couldn't even buy a flag. In the six weeks that followed that, I couldn't buy a flag. They were sold out across America because patriotism was off the charts. You remember those days when almost every house had a flag on it, when people were were standing together as Americans, when we were united for a purpose. And the picture gets even more clear here in comparison between Israel then and America now. Number three in your outline, political diplomacy. Look at verse 12. Then the tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin saying what is this wickedness that has taken place among you now then deliver up the men 
some worthless fellows of Osama bin, uh, of, of Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of the Taliban of, of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. The sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. Political diplomacy. Before they go to war, they send out messengers saying, what is this you have done? Talk to us. Let's work this out. let's, Let's see if something can be done to make this right. And diplomacy does not work very well. Apparently the United Nation of Israel Security Council resolution, this didn't have the impact they hoped it would, so war becomes imminent. Politics are nice, gang, but they will not save this nation. Politics will not save America. Politics wouldn't save Israel either. Number four in your outline, we move to godly discipline. Now watch this. Verse 15. It says, From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who draw the sword beside the inhabitants of Gibeah, who were numbered 700 choice men. 700 choice men. And it says, Out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. It's pretty amazing. By the way, just a side note. People say about David in flinging the stone at Goliath. Uh, Liberal theologians will say, Well, he picked up five stones just in case he missed. What they don't recognize is Goliath had four brothers. And so when David picked up five stones, it's because David knew he was going to hit five times. He was ready to hit five times. The first stone he threw, I'm convinced David in his faith knew was going to sink into Goliath's forehead and kill him. And here we have a group of 700 Benjamites who are capable of slinging a stone at a hair and not missing. And by the way, you might remember a judge named Ehud. The left-handed judge who thrust the spear, he's a Benjamite. So it's interesting that there may be something genetic going on in the tribe of Benjamin why there's so many left-handed warriors here. But it says in verse 17 that the men of Israel besides Benjamin were numbered 400,000 men who draw the sword. All these were men of war. 26,000 Benjamites plus 700 more. So a total on the tribe of um, Benjamin's side of 26,700 against 400,000 soldiers from Israel. It should be a slaughter. No problem, right? Read on. Verse 18. Now the sons of Israel arose and they went up to Bethel and inquired of God and they said, Who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Notice, the Lord did tell them to go. But they didn't leave them a whole lot of options. They didn't say, hey, should we go to war? They said, who should go first? So the Lord said, well, if you're asking me who should go first, it should be Judah because Judah's always the tribe that's supposed to go first into war. All the way back to Exodus, when they were traveling, the Lord said, Judah will be the first tribe out. Judah will be the first tribe to war. So when they come and ask the Lord, who should go first? Not asking whether or not they should go, just who should go first. He says, well, Judah. So the sons of Israel arose in the morning and camped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin. And the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gibeah. And the sons of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and fell to the ground on that day 22,000 men of Israel. Wow. (laughs) The Benjamites were fierce, fierce fighters. Let me tell you something. When we go to the Lord and we don't give and we give him our options or we don't give him any options, we're just limiting what he can truly do. When we go before the Father and we say, Okay, Lord, I got two choices here, which one should I go with? We're limiting the Father to our two choices. Instead of going to the Lord and saying, What would you do? What what's in your mind to accomplish here? Instead of thinking a little bit outside of our own little boxes, Paul tells us the Lord is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think, Ephesians 3.20. Jeremiah 29.11 says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And we say, oh, I sure would love to know what those plans are. You say you got plans for me, could you just tell me one or two of them? And I say, look in the book. The plans are here. All the plans are right here and they are accessible and available to everybody and you don't need for anyone to tell you what they are just look 
look in the book. Well, going on in verse 19, actually go on in verse uh, 22. So the, the people, the men of Israel, are now encouraged. They encourage themselves. They arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. So first attack was a miserable failure. Verse 23, So the sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening. Okay, now we're getting the hearts right a little bit. They inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against him. Should we fight? Yes. The answer is yes, you should fight. Okay? Watch what happens. Verse 24, The sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day. Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah the second day and fell to the ground again 18,000 men of the sons of Israel. All these drew the sword. 40,000 of the 400,000 men of Israel are now dead at the hands of the Benjamites. Who should go first for us, Lord? Send Judah. And they lose 22,000. Should we go, Lord? Yeah, go ahead and go. And they lose 18,000. And I, I think, Lord, i got to teach this. And it's kind of Zeus-like. I mean, you're playing with them. This, this doesn't seem to be your nature. What's going on here? I don't quite understand. Go a little further. It says, verse 26, Then all the sons of Israel and all the people of Israel went up and came to Bethel and wept. Well, they've already done that once. Thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted. Oh, they haven't done that yet. They fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. They hadn't done that yet either. Verse 27 says, The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, listen to this, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Verse 29. So, Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And the sons of Israel went up against the sons of Benjamin on the third day and arrayed themselves against Gibeah as at other times. The sons of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city and they began to strike and kill some of the people as at other times on the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. And in the field, about 30 men of Israel, the sons of Benjamin said, they're struck down before us just as at the first. But the sons of Israel said, Let us flee that we may draw them away from the city to the highways. And you may remember from Joshua chapter 9, that was the battle strategy of Joshua against the city of Ai. Draw them out and then come in behind them. And that's what the sons of Israel do. Verse 33, All the men of Israel arose from their place. They arrayed themselves at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel in ambush broke out of their place, even out of Ma'arah Giba. When 10,000 choice men from all Israel came out against Gabeah, the battle became fierce. But Benjamin did not know that disaster was close to them. Verse 35, The Lord struck Benjamin before Israel. So that the sons of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all who draw the sword. The sons of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. And when the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they relied on the men in the ambush whom they had set against Gibeah, the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in the ambush also deployed and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed sign between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise from the city. So the men of Israel turned in the battle and Benjamin began to strike and kill. And it's kind of going back now and explaining this. Kill about 30 of men of Israel for they said surely they're defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the cloud began to rise from the city in a column of smoke, Benjamin looked behind them and behold the whole city was going up in smoke to heaven. And the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were terrified, for they saw that disaster was close to them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel toward the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them. While those who came out of the city destroyed them in the midst of them, they surrounded Benjamin, pursued them without rest, and trod them down opposite Gabeah toward the east. Thus 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, and all these were valiant warriors. The rest turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon where they caught 5,000 more of them on the highways and overtook them at, at Gidom and killed 2,000 of them. So again, all of Benjamin who fell that day were 25,000 men who draw the sword. All these were valiant warriors. 
But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon where they remained at the rock of Ramon four months. The men of Israel then turned back against the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city, with the cattle. And all that they found, they also set on fire all the cities which they found. And I want you to see a couple of things here. In this state of Israel, in the state of the world in those days, civil war breaks out. In the days just after Joshua's death, not only do they become absolutely morally depraved, but civil war breaks out and the brothers of Israel are not fighting the inhabitants of the land, they're fighting each other. This is anarchy, it's out of control, it's brutal. Now the rest of the story finishes out in chapter 21, which we'll do next week, but I want to think through something here. And it's this question. Why did the Lord do what He did to Israel? Why would he allow the Benjamites to take out 22,000 on the first day, 18,000 on the second day, before bringing help to Israel and doling out the godly discipline that Benjamin deserved in in going up against this tribe who who was accepting of homosexuality, who was brutal in their relation to women, who, who showed depravity in every way? Why did God do this to Israel? Think about what Israel did. Verse 18, they went to the Lord and they said, who should go first? In other words, God bless what we're doing. We already have a plan here. We just know, we need to know how best to execute it. So we want you to join us in what we're doing. We be involved where we're at. They don't ask, should we be doing this? They don't ask, Lord, what's your will? They say, we're doing this. Who do you want to go first? And so the Lord says, well, if you're doing it anyway, did you to go first? And he lets them go headlong into it. And 22,000 are killed. Day 2. Verse 23. They come back to the Lord. And then they finally ask the question they should have asked in the first place. Should we do this? The Lord answers truly. Yes, you should. Yes, this discipline is deserved in Benjamin. Yes, you should go up against them. But they don't ask anything else. And so when they go up on the second day. Again, 18,000 killed. It wasn't until the third approach that the people of Israel had victory. Why? Is it just the third time's the charm? Finally God said, all right, I'll help. Why is this? What's different? Verse 26, look at it again. All the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel and wept. They remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. They weep, they fast, they offer sacrifices. The difference the third time is Israel's repentance. Israel repented. Matthew chapter 3 verse 8, John the Baptist warned the Pharisees against false approaches to the Lord. And he tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You've got to start with repentance. And that's what was missing in Israel. Not just in Benjamin... Israel was indignant at what they saw happen in Gabeah among the Benjamites. They were disgusted by it. They were horrified when the pieces of the concubines showed up on their front doorsteps. And they gather together and they say, We will righteously fight for God. These people deserve what they get. Let's go get them. And they don't even pause to recognize that they've got the same problems in their own backyard. And they need to repent of that first before they can be the tool of the Lord. The godly discipline that we're talking about here, gang, is for both the tribe of Benjamin, but it's also for the entire nation of Israel. The nation needs to repent. And I ask, is it possible that we might learn something from history? The terrorist of Gibeah, who brutalized, defiled, raped, and killed, they needed to be hunted down and brought to justice. But Israel itself needed to repent of their own apostasy. They were so busy looking at the the horror of the Benjamites, they weren't even looking at themselves and considering their own sin before the Lord. The reality was, the Lord wasn't ready to go up before them because they had not repented. Why aren't things going better for America's war on terror? Why is it when we turn on the news do we hear nothing but negative, negative, negative? The politicians have been talking against, against this war for years now. But the people are getting discouraged. Probably some of you are saying, 
boy, is this thing even... I mean, what, Iraq's a quagmire. Should we even be there? Is it Vietnam too? What, what do we do with this? And the heart of America is waning and failing. Why is this? Gang, the one thing that has not happened in America since 9-11 is repentance. That's the one thing this country has failed to do. And we have sinned as a nation. Sure, 3,000 civilians died on 9-11. How many children have died at the hands of skilled surgeons in the abortion clinics of America over the past three decades? And have we repented of that? We say, well, what about the depravity of men like Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and Mahmoud Ahmadinejad? These guys are all depraved people. And what about the brutality of Islam that's being seen for what it truly is? These are horrific things. And I say, yeah, but how is the level of depravity and brutality on the streets of America? What's it look like for us here at home? Is it me or does it just seem that violent crime is increasing exponentially? Is it just being reported now more often? Or am I noticing that it's worse, that it's more brutal, that it's more, more brutal, more depraved than, than it's ever been? Did you know the number one export of America is pornographic entertainment? That's number one for America. And we wonder why God isn't going before us and why aren't we winning this, this righteous war? And Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. And the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Listen to this old quote. What America needs today is not government controls. It's not industrial expansion. It's not a bumper crop. America needs to return to the day when Grandpa took the team out of the, pe- out of the field in the early afternoon on a Wednesday in order to hitch them to the, the old spring wagon into which Grandma put all the children after she washed their faces shiny clean. And they drove off to prayer meeting at the little white church at the crossroads underneath the oak trees where everybody believed the Bible, trusted Christ, and loved one another. That's a precious little quote there. It was written in 1928 in the Wall Street Journal. You might say, well, Rick, aren't you just kind of pining here for the glory days? I mean, you know, we all understand that was America then and it's just not America now. I am convinced that the reason why things are what they are in this country, in the war on terror, on our streets, why from terrorism to our small towns, our country, can be summed up in two words. American apostasy. And as we've talked about over the last three teachings from chapter 17 through chapter 20 here, we've seen three different levels or or, or focuses on apostasy in Israel, the state of the world at that time. It is the state of the world in which we live today. You might say, okay, but Rick, I understand that we as a nation need to repent. But I'm not the president, and I'm not in Congress, and I've called my congressman, And I do feel bad, and I do personally repent for what's going on. How can I make a nation repent? We need to draw back and recognize that repentance has to start with each one of us individually. Even for the things going on in our own lives, the Lord revealed something to me this last week. And it really hit me hard. I didn't see it coming. I was thinking about some of the jokes that I used to tell when I was a youth pastor. Jokes that I told students in my youth ministry. Jokes that I would not even dare tell today. And as I thought about that, I thought, I wonder how many of those kids that I was a youth pastor to have taken those same jokes that are inappropriate and spread them out to other people. And after all these years, I found myself repenting for telling dumb jokes. And then I started thinking about the things that, as a Bible teacher teaching teenagers that I taught, that were maybe not heresy, but certainly not on target. And I started thinking, Lord, I am sorry. And I started praying that God would cause teenagers to forget what I told them if it wasn't of Him. And I think the reason why God brought that to mind was to show me personally, and I, and I am speaking personally here, that repentance, bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, has to start right here. And I can't tell you what you need to repent of, what you need to turn over to the Lord, how that needs to happen. But I can guarantee if you take a moment or two and think about it, there's something there that maybe you've never said to the Lord that you'd do well to to say to Him. Verse 35 in the chapter, it told us that the Lord struck Benjamin before Israel. 
Not that Israel struck Benjamin, but that the Lord struck Benjamin. What day of the battle was that? It was on the third day that the Lord gave him victory. And it wasn't until, listen, it wasn't until after the sacrifices were given that God gave victory on the third day. In the same way with us, we couldn't even approach the Lord in repentance except for the fact that the sacrifice was given and Jesus Christ brought victory on the third day when He rose from the dead. The sacrifice has been paid. You don't have to sacrifice again. You don't have to offer up sacrifices. But we repent to the Lord because He has already been that perfect sacrifice. He has already given us the victory on the third day. And so we... As Israel wept and fasted, we are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, personally, individually. We are to, as Israel offered sacrifices, we are to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ, through which Jesus gave us our salvation. And I sent out an email today, some of you may or may not have gotten it yet. No church gives you your salvation. The cross of Jesus. Faith in God's grace. That is where our salvation lies. We cling to that. And then and only then can we honestly express our indignation at the growing immorality around us. And then we can with honest hearts before the Lord pray for His mercy for America. But it has to start with us. And Father, we, we repent to You. There is so much, Lord even represented in this room and I Lord there's a lot of a lot of goodness here a lot of people here tonight doing great things in your name doing great ministry and serving and loving and clinging to your word and and, and faithful and praising you for the cross but Father among us we all know there's a lot of sin and there are a lot of unspoken things between us and you Lord And Father, I pray that you will begin in us tonight a process of repentance, personally. I pray again, as I did earlier, for conviction, not for condemnation, but for conviction, Father, that we might become aware of the areas in our lives where we have sinned against you, where we have misled others, where we haven't been the children that you called us to be. And I pray, Father, you will illuminate those to us just so that we may repent of them and be freed from them and glory in the sacrifice and the victory of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will embed it in our hearts and may we be doers of the word, not hearers only, in Jesus' name. Amen.